Romans chapter 8, as we have said, going through the book of Romans, this is the power plant of God's grace, how God's grace in giving us his spirit gives us the power to live for him. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship, a real vital relationship with God through Jesus Christ by the power of the miracle of the Spirit of God dwelling in my life. And we've talked about a number of relationships as we've gone through chapter 8, and that chapter 8 is really the summit of the book of Romans. And we've been kind of viewing the summit. I'm a big Mount Everest. I love to watch movies about Mount Everest. It's my like the goal that I'll never reach of summiting Everest. I'm way too chicken to even try that, and I'm way too poor to ever try that. It takes a lot of money and time to do that. It's one of those things that I always dream about. It's much easier to dream about it than it is to actually do it, right? But I've always thought me having a ministry at the base camp of Mount Everest. So you watch them, they're going up to the summit, and you get to a place where you you can see the summit. You still have a lot to go, but you can see the summit from where you are. And going through chapter 8, we've been sort of looking and moving toward the summit of this spirit-filled life. And we've learned that spirit-filled churches— this is a term, is your church a spirit-filled church? Has anybody ever heard that question asked? Or maybe you've asked that question, is your church a spirit-filled church? Well, I don't know. It depends on what you mean by that. Does that mean we do somersaults down the aisle and everybody throws their arms up all the time and speaks in tongues and barks like dogs and all that kind of stuff? That's not us. But if by spirit-filled church, you mean that we're a group of people whose minds are set on the things of the spirit, I hope that's us. That's who I want to be. But that's what a spirit-filled church is. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So if we want to be a spirit-filled church, all church is is a group of individuals. That's what church is. Church isn't a building. Church is people. And so if we are a group of people whose minds are set on the things of the spirit, guess what we will be? We'll be a spirit-filled church. I think what people notice when they come in here, I just feel the spirit of God. What you're saying is I sense that there's people here whose minds are set on things above, not on things of the earth. So we talked about then how God adopts us, how we're like orphans, and that God, he's searched us out, he's found us, and he gives us the spirit of adoption. The paperwork's been signed, we're adopted into his family. We're given full rights as the firstborn son. We have rights to all the inheritance. Everything God has is ours. But in the meantime, the papers are signed, but he's had to leave and he's coming back to get us and fully adopt us. And the adoption that we're waiting for is the redemption of our bodies, these bodies that are breaking down, corruptible, and all the pain and suffering that happens on planet Earth. That's what we introduced last time, that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us in the future, that's going to be revealed in us. And so we've gone through the discussion last time about suffering and the fact that the world we live in has been subjected to emptiness and corruption. So we recognize that things are breaking down. Things are dying. People die. Things die. The world is subject to corruption. The other thing that he mentioned is that it was subjected to futility. And you can remember that word because it's a word that means emptiness. Emptiness. And I find that one of the things we'll talk about in Romans 8 is that the Spirit of God gives us purpose in a world filled with emptiness. And the Spirit of God gives us assurance in a world filled with hopelessness. So these are two things that we're going to get out of the passage today. So we've got to move somewhat quickly. 
the first one, verse 26 is where we ended. Verse 26, 27 is where we ended last time while we're waiting for the redemption of our body, as we're living out our lives on earth, as we're being led by the Spirit and yet still dealing with the suffering, the painful emotions that are part of life on planet earth. We don't just wait and throw up our hands and go, oh, well, you know, we just, we just have to wait it out. We pray. The problem is when we pray, we don't even know how to pray because we don't know what's happening. How many of you have come to realize that our view of things is extremely narrow? I mean, we just have a really limited view. I can barely see five feet in front of me. James says we can make plans for next year, but who are we to say what's going to happen next year? Our lives are a vapor. We don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. We have to come face to face with the fact that we are powerless to control our futures. So as we live out life, we can't change maybe some things. There's some things we can change, but there's things in our lives that we can't change. But we come to terms with this sense of the smallness of our understanding, the smallness of our vision. And so we pray and we don't even know what to pray. So the Spirit of God intercedes for us and says, well, what Steve really wants, because I tend to pray, Lord, get me out of this mess. Lord, relieve me from my pain. I want to be released from pain. And who doesn't, right? But we're going to learn that sometimes pain is what we call redemptive. It's purposeful. And I find that people, including this person up here, are much willing to endure pain when they know that it's purposeful. How many of you say, I just love going to the dentist? I mean, the needle in the back of my mouth, I love that. And that's, you know, the sound of the drill and the smoke coming out of your mouth, all that. I just can't wait for that. So we, none of us look forward to that, but we gladly endure it. Why? Because we know it's redemptive pain. That pain is working something else out in our lives. So while we pray, God has to intercede for us as we pray. So because the Spirit of God is interceding for us, translating our prayers, then we have verse 28. He says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. How many of you have received sort of life-giving hope from that passage? How many of you have turned to that passage in a humongous time of need and gotten comfort from that? I mean, all of us have. I refer to that passage all the time. And now we get to see it in context. And Paul starts out with saying, we know there's something that we know. And the word literally means that we know by perceiving it with our mind. We understand God. We understand that when the world was subjected to futility, when sin entered the world and things became hopeless or sort of empty, but God always, always, always had a plan, even from the beginning. Jesus and the cross were not afterthoughts. Adam and Eve didn't sin and God went, oh, now what do I do? No, now they've gone and blown it. Now I have to figure something out. He knew it all along. And he had a plan for it all along. So even though things seemed purposeless and things were subjected to this death and corruption, God did it always with a plan. And so Paul says, we know that about God. And because we know that about God and because we know he's interceding for us, we can know that all things work together for good. Now, this is not a blanket statement. Who does this apply to? Everybody? No, it says to those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. 
So things happen in life, circumstances, painful emotions come, painful experiences come. We experience death, we experience illness, we experience disappointment, we experience meaninglessness and purposelessness. Look, I'll tell you what, I think some of the most difficult, painful emotions that we struggle with on the face of the earth is when you finally come face to face with meaninglessness and purposelessness. When you look at your job and you go, what am I doing? I get up in the morning, I have my cereal, and I watch the morning news, and I head off to the office, and I do my thing, and then I head back home, and I have dinner, and whatever I do, and I repeat it every day. It's like we're on the the hamster wheel, right? We're running, 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 but feel like we're not getting anywhere. Have you ever looked at what you did for a living and go, what's the point? You're like, what does this really matter in the scheme of the world, you know? Even, let's say you're a doctor, you're a great doctor. Well, I bring healing to people, they're going to die. I mean, I'm just being honest. And the problem is the things that the world glorifies, I mean, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about suffering and glory. The things that the world honors, and the world honors it by two ways, applause and money. The jobs that get the most glory are the ones that get the most pay. That glory equals money, or glory equals applause or honor. So we just had the Super Bowl, right? And I mean, people go nuts. Millions upon millions of people all over the world are watching this game, and it's filled with glory, and there's all kinds of pomp and circumstance and lights and cameras, and the whole thing is there. And at the end, there's a trophy, and the team is celebrating. Then you stop and you go, okay, let's break this down. What has just occurred? Everybody is celebrating. Cities are celebrating, and people are celebrating at offices, and, and all that's happened is one group of big guys in tight pants with lots of pads has succeeded moving an elongated ball across a line on this piece of dirt on planet Earth. That's what we've done. We've just done better at that than anybody else. And you go, for what? I mean, is that really the most important thing in the world? Now, look, I'm not downing football. I love sports. I love sports. But partly what happens in our lives is we deal with the pain of meaningless, purposelessness. And we ask ourselves, what is life really about? And you start to look at the things you do and you go, it can't be that. I mean, I love to go to the gym, but I'm fighting corruption like everybody else. I can't live for that. I can like football, but I can't live for football because ultimately, who cares? I mean, let's talk about the World Cup. I mean, you're the best at kicking a ball into a net. Hey, that's something to be proud of, right? I can kick a ball in a net. I mean, I just printed this article. This is Michael Phelps. He's great at swimming. There's not even a shark chasing him. He just swims, just to swim. I'm just swimming. Just swimming one side of the pool to the other, and I'm just swimming. I'm not getting anywhere. I mean, if this was like survival thing, then maybe swimming is good, but just back and forth in a pool. But you know, one of the most wide-selling books in Christian history, aside from the Bible, is The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren. Guess who's got a copy of that? Michael Phelps. One of the 40 million copies sold of The Purpose Driven Life ended up in the large paddle-like hands of Michael Phelps. In between winning Olympic golds, Phelps made headlines for very different reasons. Repeated DUIs, parties, and pot, weight gain, and rehab. A couple of years ago, a fellow athlete and friend gave the champion swimmer this best-selling book. I basically told him, okay, everything has a purpose, and now guess what? It's time to wake up. And I thought that was a great saying. So I don't know what Michael Phelps is doing with that, but people say, oh, sports build character. Sports don't build character. They reveal character. If sports build character, every successful athlete would be a man or woman of huge character, right? But is that what we see? 
So we got to ditch the lies in our lives about what's purposeful and what's meaningful, because what we're doing really is we're hiding from pain. Everybody is coming to the reality of the painful emotions of the meaninglessness of life and hiding from that. Either the good purpose of that is to lead you to God, but without God, then you're stuck trying to find pleasure apart from God. And you can try to find that in religion, but you find out that's empty. You try to find it in work, but that's empty. You get old, they fire you and hire somebody younger. Your ideas are outdated. You try to find it in sports or athletics or the gym or wherever else you try to find it. And all that that does is lead to more pain because you realize that everything in this world is just going in a direction. That's toward corruptibility. And so you come round the cycle, round the cycle until you get off the hamster wheel and you realize that your life is about way more than you. And that's what he says here. We know that all things are working together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't feel good. How do you even judge good and bad anyway? You ever thought about that? How do you even look at your life and go, well, that was really good. How do you know? How do you know what's good and bad? How do you know what's called good, beneficial, excuse me, and let's call bad, unbeneficial? That makes sense. How do you know what's good and bad? I mean, look at the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. He's got the glorious coat, right? Destined for glory. All the promises, the dreams he had. But then what happens to his dreams? Well, he gets attempted to be killed by his brothers, but they feel bad about it. So they just put him in a pit and leave him for dead. But then one brother feels guilty about it. So they decide to sell him into slavery. So he becomes a slave in Potiphar's house in Egypt. And he's serving the Lord there. And his dreams, he's going down. He goes down to a pit. Then he goes down to Egypt. Now he's down to the level of a slave. Well, then he gets lied about and he gets arrested, gets put in prison. Now he's not just a slave. Now he's a prisoner. And he goes down, 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 down in his life. And even the prison, he gets forgotten there until one day there's a dream and he interprets it. And in a moment, he's thrust into this prime position in Egypt. And all along those steps, how do you think Joseph was feeling? I think he was feeling at any given moment, this is really a bad thing. God was setting him up all along. His suffering was not purposeless. And his purpose was about way more than Joseph. See, that's the problem with Americans. We really live in this idea that that our lives are just, it's all about us and our happiness. We're in this search for personal peace and happiness. And until you get the picture that your life is about more than you, it's not about you. It's never been about you. It's about God and what he's doing. And so if you want your dreams fulfilled, I'm sorry, but that role of God is already taken. See, We come to God and we say, God, here's what I want you to do for me. I want to use you to fulfill my purposes. I want that job. I want that guy. I want that girl. I want that house. God, do it for me. And God says, well, if that's what you want, I mean, you're going to be disappointed with me. I'm sorry. Because I've got a plan way bigger than your plan. You know, think about the potter who's working the clay on the wheel. That clay has no idea what the potter needs, what the house needs. The clay has no idea what's going on. All the clay knows it's going round and round and round, going, what is going on in my life? I feel like I'm going round and round and round. And then there's pressure on this side, and there's pressure on that side, and there's squeezing here and a little pain there. But meanwhile, when the wheel finally stops revolving, the potter has made something according to what he wanted, according to what he needed, according to his plan. So all things are not good, but all things are working together. That means co-laboring. It's like two people building a house together. 
They're working together. The suffering works together with the blessing, works together with the suffering. And all these things are kind of combining, joining together, laboring together for good. For those that love God. See, if you don't love God, you'll never see it. You'll still be about your plans and you'll end up frustrated, discouraged, depressed, disappointed. Why? Because your dreams never got fulfilled. You had big dreams in life. You knew what you wanted to be. You knew where you wanted to go. And maybe some people get to realize them. The average person does not. I'm never going to climb Everest. If that's what I was living for, it'd be disappointing. And most of us are never going to climb Everest. Most of us are living our lives, listen, are living our lives in the mundane activities of our daily lives and relationship. And that's exactly where God meets you and gives you purpose. You think to have purpose in life, you got to do something great. All we're going to find out here is what happens is that we get transformed and then every little act we do becomes an act of worship and reveals God to the world through our marriages, through our parenting, through our acts of worship, through whatever things that we do, our activities of daily life. Look what he says. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. What is that? What does he want me to do? See, that's where we go to as Americans. What does God want me to do? Stop that. Move away from everything being about what you do. We got to move into the realm of who you are. That's what God's concerned about. That's what causes all the suffering in the world. And that's what God is redeeming. Look what he says. For whom he foreknew, let's just read the section here. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And who he justified, these he also glorified. Did you see how many times the word he is in there? Who's doing the work? You see, we got into this whole thing because we thought it was all about our works. I'm going to get myself to God because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve God and I'm going to keep the law and I'm going to keep all the rules and I'm going to check all the box. And now as we hit the summit, we realize it's not about my works. It's not about me accomplishing anything. It's about what God is accomplishing. It's about his plan. It's about his purposes. He did it. He did it. He did it. And it's all in the past tense. It's all in the past tense. But you catch it right there. We don't even show up until we're called. First couple of sections there, first couple of words, for whom he foreknew, that's to know beforehand. That's the word in Greek is prognosis, where we get the word prognosis. The doctor says, well, here's the prognosis, and he doesn't know what he's talking about, or she. But it's a prediction of the future. The doctor does it without having foreknowledge. The doctor says, this is the best guess. God has foreknowledge. He knows the end from the beginning. There's nothing God doesn't know. God said to Jeremiah, before I called you, I knew you. Before you were conceived, I knew you. God foreknew because God creates according to his foreknowledge. An architect plans in his mind and then out comes the result. First, it starts in the mind as a plan. That's a foreknowledge. I knew what I was going to do and then I did it. That's foreknowledge. So we're sitting here because God foreknew you before you were born. He didn't wait to see how you'd be. He doesn't wait to choose you to see if you're worth choosing or not. That's the point. And he's speaking to the church. The ones he foreknew, it's those of us in here that are saved. Those of us that are 
walking with him. He foreknew you. You thought you found God. God found you. He's searching for you all your life. He foreknew and he also predestined. So we get into this word predestination, which involves the word horizon, to see the horizon before. In other words, a horizon is that distant point, that point you look at in the future. There's the horizon. It's way over there. So to predestine is to determine the horizon, to know what's going to happen in the future. So those he foreknew, he also predestined. This is not a verse. Predestination is not a verse for unbelievers. He's speaking to believers. And it tells us exactly what God predestined. Did you see that? What did he predestined us to? It doesn't say salvation. That's already taken care of. He predestines us to be conformed to the image of his son. Can you underline that? God's primary intention is not that you become a doctor or a star athlete or an entertainer. By the way, movie stars get all the glory for being good liars. That's what they get glory for. God's purpose in your life is not what you do. It's who you are. That's his purpose. His purpose is to make you like Jesus. And if he's got to use pressure, we got to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. We want to know him in the power of the resurrection, but sometimes we know him in the fellowship of sufferings. And there's things you learn about Jesus that you can only learn in suffering. There's maturity. There's roots that go down in the hard times. You know, when I do a funeral here at the church or wherever, funeral home or any place, oftentimes I start with a passage in Ecclesiastes that talks about the best place to reach people is at a funeral, not at a wedding. As a wedding, everybody's celebrating. But at a funeral, everybody's aware of their mortality. And it's the time to ask those big questions. You don't ask those big questions at a wedding. Everybody's, you know, they're not thinking about anything, just partying and all that stuff. But at a funeral, you're realizing, hey, wait a second. I'm getting older. Life is passing. Things come, things go. People die. What's life about? Why am I here? What's the purpose of all this? We like to hide from that, though. We hide from that stuff. That's why we call it amusement. I don't want to think. I just want to get home and see what's on TV. I want to hide. But look, it's healthy. You know, you can enjoy TV. You can enjoy video games. You can enjoy all that stuff as long as you know you're not hiding from the real important question. And knowing that you were created to be loved and to love. And in the garden, with the fall of mankind, the image of God that you were created in was distorted. It's been twisted. And the only time in your life that you can actually become what you were meant to be by God in the first place is when you reconnect with him. And he begins now when you give him the right in your life to begin shaping and forming you into what you were always meant to be, and that's Christ-like. And then whatever you do gives God glory because you're doing it like him. So much less about what you do than who you are. See, that's God's purpose. God says, do whatever you want. But my goal in your life is to make you more like Christ. Because when you decrease and he increases, then more of your life glorifies God. Because what people need to see, listen, people don't need to see you. People don't need to hear about how great you are. You ain't that great. Again, I'm just trying to be honest. Welcome to my world, okay? When you're a pastor, you deal with more funerals, more death than most people deal with in life. And so you think about these things a lot. So your mind goes there and you realize that, I remember a guy in our church, he was just a, a war hero. He'd been in three wars and 
unbelievable guy and he's getting older and he's still driving this little red sports car at age 94, got baptized at age 94. Some of you guys remember him. But then, you know, as he got closer, died at age 99, which is awesome anyway, right? 99 years old. But at that point, you know, he's a war hero and he can barely walk. His balance is off. He's incontinent. So this is corruption. And we just realized that anything glorious in this world is fading glory. But when we are connected to God, 2 Corinthians 3 tells us we move from glory to greater glory to greater glory. How? Because the Spirit of God is transforming us into the image of His Son. The outward man is perishing. Forget about that stuff. We spend too much time on the outside. If we spend as much time in the mirror of the Word as we did in the mirror looking at ourselves, where would we be? I'm preaching to myself. You know, Michelangelo was asked about how he makes those beautiful creations, the statue of David. That means perfection. The image is in there of an angel or David. I just have to set it free. And I set it free by chipping away everything that doesn't look like an angel. And so when you get saved, you're putting yourself before God saying, God, here I am. Mold me, make me. Do with me what you will. And God begins to chip away. And you go, ouch, don't do that. That hurts. God begins to chip away everything in your life that doesn't look like Jesus. He is working on it, working on it, working on it. Look, he says, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed or to be formed with the image of his son, which you were always created to be, the image of God. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God desires a big family. People don't need to see you. They need to see Jesus. That's how God gets glorified. When they see God in you, and oh, they get such little glimpses in our lives, don't they? Occasionally. But the more we walk with him, the more he's doing this work in our lives, it's not about religion. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he justified. He took away the punishment, which the punishment was death, so he takes away death. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Do you notice that's in the past tense? Glorified is past tense. Remember, God lives outside of time. It's as if it's already been done. It's so certain. The scheme and the projection of your life is so certain because God's at work. If it was up to me, how certain would it be? Wouldn't be very certain at all. But because it's God who's doing it, your end is taken care of. Look, Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, when he kneels down, he washes the disciples' feet. He says, basically, God, I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going. Those bookends are taken care of. You don't have anything to prove to anybody. You have already, if you could step outside of time, it's as if all of those that are his, all of us that have been called and justified and glorified, it's like we're already there. Because God knows the end from the beginning. God wrote the story. He's not learning anything new. We're just living it out in real time. But how does that work? I don't know. Sometimes we get to see how something difficult works out for good. I mean, sometimes, well, you know, I was dating that girl and we were engaged, but it broke off. And, and then it turned out to be a good thing because I met this girl and that's much better. And sometimes we go, oh, maybe this was it. There's so much bigger things at stake here. You're part of something so much bigger than you. And you won't realize it. And none of it will make sense until you grasp these truths 
and until we get to heaven together. And we're going to realize that all the things we spent so much time worrying about and freaking out about were just really not that big of a deal. And so Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? Look at verse 31. So what do we say? So church, what do you say to this? All of this, it's not about works. It's not about our accomplishments. It's not about, you know, religion. It's all about the spirit of God working in our lives. God is taking it from beginning to end. What do you say to this? He asks these questions. If God is for us, then who can be against us? I mean, you got to stop being a victim, right? Isn't that what he says? Everybody's against me. We got a bunch of Eeyores in the church. I don't know. How's your day going? I don't know. How things? Uh, oh, pastor, I'm rejoicing. God says rejoice at all things. Rejoice at all times. If God is for us, which he is, and since God is for us, Who's more powerful than God? You gotta stop being a victim. You are not a victim because God is for you. So then therefore, no one can be against you. Look, remember Balaam and Balak? You know, Balaam tried to pronounce a curse against God's people. And God said, well, you can't curse people on blessing, sorry. No one can do anything to you against the will of God. Nothing can come into your life against the will of God. And God is for you. You say, well, why God let that happen? Just he's squeezing you. He's conforming you to the image of his son. Well, how's that work? I don't know. I don't know. We're all kind of working it out ourselves, trying to figure this out. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Wait a second. You're telling God's going to give us the car, but then say, I can't give you the air freshener. Sorry, you're on your own for that. God has given us value. The value of something, what's it worth to you? That's like Craigslist, right? You got to work that all out on Craigslist and you go to buy that thing and then the whole game begins of bartering and all that. What's it worth to you? God says, you know, you may not feel like you're worth a whole lot on planet earth, but God says to me, you are worth a son. So you got to stop feeling worthless. You may feel worthless, but you have to confess that to God, you are as valuable as the cost of his son. He traded his son for you. That's how much he loves you. So you got to get rid of being a victim. You got to get rid of feeling worthless. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who's making intercession for us. So not only that, if you go to the courtroom, In the courtroom of God, God is the judge. So if someone else wants to condemn you, God says, well, sorry, I'm the judge. And I say, they're forgiven. Nah, nah, what do you say to that? If God is for you, if God is justifying you, if he's saying you're innocent, I declare you innocent, then who has the authority to come along and say, no, you're guilty? The church doesn't have the authority to say that. Other people don't have the authority to say that. So you gotta give up feeling condemned all the time. You got to give up feeling like God is always against you. Anybody feel like that? These things have always, God's getting me. That could be your guilty conscience. But God is for you. He is for you. He is for you. If you're not saved, God is against you. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Who can condemn you? It's Christ who died. Not only that, not only is the judge telling you you're innocent, 
But Jesus is the lawyer pleading your case, not condemning you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, pressure or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Can any of these circumstances? You see, God gives us a hope and a purpose that is beyond being determined by circumstance. Everybody else you meet out in the world, everything's dependent on circumstances. Circumstances good, my life is good. Circumstances bad, my life is bad. People are living on an emotional roller coaster. I don't know what's happening. Why is this happening? Why is that? Why did I lose the job? Why did this happen? Why did they break up with me? Da 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 da. God sets you free from all of that stuff. And he says, tribulation, distress. He doesn't say these things are never going to happen. Did you catch that? He doesn't say you'll never be in distress. He says, no, you'll never be apart from me in distress. I'm in distress with you. I'm in the tribulation with you. God is never going to abandon you. In the world, people abandon us. Paul got abandoned as he lived for Christ. You've been abandoned. It's been a spouse. It's been kids. It's been people you work with. They hung you out to dry. You go, I don't know if I can trust people. And then you go, I don't know if I can trust God. But Paul is saying, you can trust God. Matter of fact, you don't have a choice. You have to trust God because you certainly can't trust you. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He quotes a psalm. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Just circle more than conquerors and you can write there, super victorious. We are super victorious. How can you be more than a conqueror? We are more than conquerors because of Christ's love for us, because the things that people try to use against us, the suffering things, they actually serve to work for God's purpose. All the things that happened to Joseph through his life, God actually used them to serve his own purposes. Now, how do you beat that? How do you top that? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, and you need to be persuaded too, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. You don't have to worry about the future, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You have just summited theological Everest. And what we have found there is that the love of God for you is more powerful than anything you can ever experience on the face of the earth. His love for you is unconditional. His love for you is sacrificial. There is no length to which he will not go to to accomplish his purposes in you and to ultimately demonstrate his love for you. It may not make sense now. You may not understand it now, but you know that God is working everything according to his plan.